Today, I had the opportunity to speak with Brian Johnson. His combination of being a straight shooter, a natural conversationalist, and deeply knowledgeable in a wide array of topics makes him the type of guy you'd like to have around. We explore the what and why of enterprise architects and also dig into the path that led to all of Brian's success. As a short aside, I apologize for the video not starting until a couple minutes in. As they say, Rome wasn't built in a day, and all good things take a couple iterations until you find the exact experience you're looking for. Enjoy. Brian is an enterprise architect, and he's been doing that for some time now. Uh, we're going to learn a lot about that today and really uh, just kind of dig into the path that took him there, um, what makes a good enterprise architect, things like this, and uh, I think it should be really good. So yeah, welcome on, man. All right. Yeah, like I said, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. Let's kick this thing off by having you go a little bit into where you're at now, and then we'll go from there. So yeah, so I work for Fangine Retail Services, um, you know, colloquially known as Fangine RS. Uh, we're a strategic management consulting firm based out of uh, Zurich, Switzerland, uh, but we do work all over the EU, and we're even starting to, to do a little work in the U.S. And uh, yeah, like I said, it's a lot of fun because uh, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, hey, Brian, build a system. It's, hey, Brian, you know, we've got this business has this problem, you know, find a solution. <laughs> that's probably the coolest part about my job is that, you know, I just never know what I'm going to get hit with next week. And like you said, if you, anyone that knows me and my energy, you know, it's like routine is the death of me, right? I have to stay challenged, right? So oh, man. I really like it. I totally get it. Yeah, that's kind of um, a role that I think anyone with that kind of a, a personality trait wants. And I, I tend towards that direct, direction as well. Um, kind of being like the, the rogue operative that goes in and says, fix it. Like brand new problem, yeah. three, two, one, go. Uh, right, right, no, right. that's really cool. That's awesome. And you've yeah. been there five years now, ish. So yes, I've been, I was actually just thinking about that. Like, yeah, we're. I've, uh, if I haven't hit the five year mark, I'm like going to like within the next couple of weeks. I'm sure. Um, I've been, you know, so the senior partner over there, Alexander Meerhofer, uh, who's a uh, you know just brilliant sales executive, right? Uh, and even though he comes from a totally different background and country and language and and. Uh, socioeconomic status i mean pretty much you know our backgrounds could not be more different but like as far as goals and values and passion for what we do like he's almost like the business counterpart of me right so i i mean i have a lot of fun with that guy and how'd you two meet how'd you two uh come to know each other so we were introduced through a mutual friend, a uh, very good friend of mine, uh, Philip Schunder, who's also in my, my best friend here in Florida happens to be an Austrian. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, um, he, like I said, he knows uh, Alex from a long time ago and they had a project going on. And, uh, you know, Philip was just like, hey, you know, why don't you talk to this guy? I was like, okay, okay. I kept kind of putting it off for a little bit. And then finally they're like, hey, uh, they're going to fly you to Switzerland. <clears throat> they just want to talk to you. They're going to, basically give you some spending money, have a nice week in Zurich and, uh, you know, just give them like two or three days. The rest of the times you're, you know, you're on, if you don't like it, you just had a nice little trip. And at the time, like I was going through this like union lockout thing in South Bend with Honeywell. So it was like crossing picket lines is no fun. If you're wearing the beige manager pants. Oh man. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, so I was like, you know what, this is like a great idea. <laughs> so I went and checked it out and yeah, like I said, I mean, um, I didn't really, think that I was super qualified for the position, to be honest. I mean, I was kind of straightforward about that, but um, they thought I would be great for it. And yeah, I'm going to be completely honest that the first 
six, seven months were absolutely brutal, man. I did not know if I was going to make it, right? Just learning every um, day, just tripping over your own feet. Yeah, I mean, the amount of knowledge I had to soak up. Because, yeah, I mean, we can get into my background, you know, a little bit later. But yeah. really, you know, I'd spent over 10 years more on the hardware side. Yes, we were doing software and things like that. But we weren't doing web and mobile development, man. Come on. That's like a totally different ballgame. Different game. Right? Totally. Yeah, right. Um, you know, and all of a sudden I'm having like integrate point of sale systems and stuff like that. I mean, it's like, I mean, none of it's that hard. Just read through the docs. Right. But again, it's just like at the pace at which you had to move, you know, to be successful was, was very rough. Right. But, you know, Hey, you know, I survived and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, now after a few years, I mean, I'm downright thriving in the environment. Right. So, uh, it's been, uh, even though there's a lot of pain associated over the past five years, I mean, it's just been, you know, a time of tremendous growth and opportunity for me that I just couldn't be more grateful for. No, that's incredible. And, and better, better it be that way than just starting a role where you're either overqualified or exactly qualified and it's either monotonous or just purely execution. Um, it's funny, we have a handful of interns at my work right now, and it's, mm. it's funny seeing new interns come in and seeing them have those struggle moments continually, mm -hmm. continually, continually, but some of them are starting to hit that peak where it's like, all right, I'm, I'm really starting to get it. You can tell they're starting to be a little mm -hmm. more autonomous and, yeah, and yeah. that's awesome. So going through that, that bout of, of the mud is awesome and important, but, and especially now that you're thriving on the other end of it. Perfect. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, watching a team kind of develop and grow and just like, yeah, kind of like just become their own engine. Right. It, that, that's, that's really fulfilling for me too. Um, because I always tell everybody, you know, I'm just an engineer at heart, you know, meaning that I like to design and build systems. Those can, those can be management systems. Those could be IT systems. I just like, you know, modeling problems and solving them. Right? That's just kind of uh, something that's really fun for me. And, you know, there's nothing more challenging than what we're doing right now. Um, because, you know, Fangene, what Fangene does actually is, you know, we look for, we're kind of selective about our clients, but we, what we do is we look for companies that have either, you know, found a product market fit or, uh, you know, they're pretty close to doing it, right? Because that's when VCs kind of want to get involved. Totally. Or maybe, you know, if you're in a market that's really blowing up, you can only be halfway there and people are ready to invest, right? You know, it all kind of depends on your positioning. But what happens is they're like, you know, and that's what you hear a lot about startups. You know, how do you get more product market fit? How do you get there? How do you get there? Yep. But, you know, so for those people that do get there, they have this like, oh, shit moment okay you know we got there but i don't know if this like fly by the seat of your pants style management's gonna scale right yeah. you know you know it's you know there's like there's this acknowledgement of okay we won the college championship guys you know we just got drafted into the nfl and and we know we're gonna have to up our game if we're gonna survive much less thrive right but what do we do you know and, and that's kind of i think where enterprise architecture comes in and where companies like fangene really come in and and you take alex like you know who who really he's just really brilliant on the sales and marketing and, and the uh product management side of product development yep. and then take me someone who's got a big history of operational excellence you know it and the engineering side of product development i mean you put that together and you know we can have just some really amazing measurable results um you know, just to toot our own horn a little bit, you know, I just in the past five years, just, you know, a couple of things have went on. Um, last project I worked on, we spent less than 18 months uh, on revamping their processes and things like that. We really want to automate these guys out uh, because they wanted to take on more business, but they couldn't expand their office footprint, right? And they didn't really necessarily want to double their staff or anything. So, uh, and say less than 18 months, I want to say it was just a little over a year, we actually over doubled the efficiency, right? The same amount of people were literally doing more than double the work 
and were reporting that it was much easier for them, right? And we even got into automating them well, right? So, I mean, so that's a little bit on my side. You know, uh, Alex aside, this last project, we, uh, you know, we did quite a bit of planning, but once we executed, we hit their annual sales goals in eight days, right? Um, you know, when we were working with uh, SBB, the Swiss Railways, uh, and we had the super good brand and, you know, uh, it's hard. I mean, the, the rent in these places to even have, get a spot because, you know, the train stations there are kind of like these mega shopping malls type, right? So getting even, there's a waiting line to even get in to pay astronomical lease rates to, you know, to be in there, right? Sure, um, sure. And you're, you know, and you're competing against, you know, the third largest retailer in Europe, you know, some really big names there mm -hmm. like, like Valora. And, um, you know, yet, yet we had the highest grossing sales of any startup to, to work in that train station ever in the history of the Swiss railway. That's, a start right? of that. that's incredible. So, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's to say when you can get a good, you know, I go back to what I said earlier about, you know, it's really great to see a team grow, especially when you're part of that team. Right. So, you know, you, when you realize that you're in a situation that where, you know, his skill set alone and my skill set alone, you know, we, what we can do together, we could never do as individuals. Right. You know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Right. But that's when, you know, when you can say, yes, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, that's when you know you've done some good work on team development and there's some great cohesion and synergy going on. Okay, so we've heard now about a little bit of what Fangine does, kind of what you and Alex are doing over there, throwing the gas on the fire and all. So talk to me a little bit about what an enterprise architect is. It's good to know that you've gotten results. It's good to know how all that's been going. Um, but what is the day-to-day -day, uh, kind of lifestyle and procedures of an enterprise architect? So uh, we, first off, I come at enterprise architecture from a slightly different direction because I'm trying to use it to add structure to startups so they can grow, right? A lot of enterprise architects are in like these huge companies that have this just uh, untamed IT landscape and they're trying to wrangle that under control, right? So just to be clear, a lot of enterprise architects aren't necessarily going to be doing what I'm doing, right? Um, because, you know, like I said, they're more trying to get the large company out, out of control rather than systematically and strategically growing. Um, but so, so enterprise architects, you know, textbook definition wise, uh, you know, are, are, are a one of three types of systems architects, which is a more general, you know, generic term. So the, you have the enterprise architects that do it at the full company strategic level. They're like basically reporting to the boardroom if they're not already, you know, part of it. You have solution architects and then software or slash technical architects, you know, below them. So the, the, the technical architects and well, I'm just gonna use the software architect. So a technical architect is basically, if you're not dealing with software, you're doing like a hardware project, that's like the same scope, basically the hardware version. Gotcha, right? gotcha. So <clears throat> software architect, hey, you know, they give you these, these technical requirements and you're building a piece of software, right? You're having to architect that, but generally you're pretty constrained, right? You know, you're told what database you're using, what language you're using, et cetera, et cetera, right? And then you're, you're building a solution within those constraints. Uh, solution architect widens that a little bit and it's the first time you're really kind of stepping foot into the business side squarely because you're being presented with business requirements that you have to translate to technical Right? Gotcha. I bet you would work with, you know, a technical or software architect. On. So you are choosing the database. Uh, you are choosing the language a lot of times, you know, whether this is cloud native and, you know, like I said, in the end solution that you're, you know, to, to fix or, you know, some business challenge or, you know, problem. Right. 
Gotcha. And then enterprise architects like, okay, well, you know, there's solution after solution after solution, but some of these solutions contribute to the strategic vision of the company. And some of them are just solving some little problem. You know, how do you, you know, and you don't want one to really kind of constrain the other one. How do we, again, we're starting to try, we got to kind of wrangle this, right? And we have to understand, how, you know, not only the solutions for the immediate challenge, but how does this fit into the bigger picture and bigger vision of where, you know, the strategic man management of a company wants to take the company or needs to take the company, right? So, uh, you know, with that said, you know, uh, yeah, so enterprise, that's what enterprise architecture is from a textbook, de you know, definition. For me, um, it, and a lot of people think about, okay, boardroom level, strategic management, it is strategic management. And I tell people all the time, I'm, I'm not really an enterprise architect, I'm a strategic problem solver, right? It's just 75% of those problems, I use enterprise architecture as a discipline to, you know, and how I approach it. Gotcha. Yep. Um, and so, you know, a lot of it is about developing technology strategies, but also a lot of it is about, you know, looking at, okay, here's the technology strategy we need. Uh, is this organization matured to a level that it makes sense to even try this, right? You know, um, just like we don't put, you know, a, the, the, the high school football tryout team, we don't start doing like the most advanced plays and things like that, right? So, uh, so you I mean, can know, to use our analogy further, you can know what gas to throw on the fire to get it to start humming, but it might be the case that that would actually suffocate the fire to begin yeah, with. Yeah, I'm going to actually get into details. I'm going to throw up a couple of slides for you because I want to actually uh, talk about this because, yeah, I'm going to tell you exactly how I identify how, you know, or some of the techniques I use to identify where a company's at and where I need to be focusing because it comes down to, like I said, yes, we're going to develop a you know, technology strategy, but the key part that a lot of people miss is, you know, not everybody can execute. It may be a good strategy. Your organization just may not be mature enough to really tackle something like that. So, so how do we strategically mature this organization to create a foundation for like business execution, right? This is what it's all about. And with that, let me see if I can figure out how, oh, host has disabled participant screen sharing. It seems I don't have your permission, Brandon. <laughs> I'll play with a little bit, I guess, talk a little bit more on, um, so you're basically trying to drive the what's now become a big boat right like a company's found product market fit they've become the bigger boat you're trying to find the way to drive them to the most you know bountiful waters in a way that doesn't sink the ship yeah what I'm, like i said what i'm trying to do is um you know i, I think I, the analogy i used before was like you know okay you won the college championship but now you just got drafted into the nfl right you know i think everybody has this feeling of, okay, we've got to operate better. You know, we can't fly by the seat of our pants anymore. You know, we've got to start approaching this systematically. Um, and, but a lot of them are just lost on where to do that. Cause you know, that doesn't mean you just want to like take on some overhead of a bunch of paperwork and administrative tasks because that's what the big guys do. Like, you don't want to do that, right? You, you, you don't have the cash flow <laughs> that these big guys have, you know, they can afford to make mistakes that you can't. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's about, and I'm going to talk about it, it's, it's about operational excellence. It's about, you know, you know what, yeah, wait till I get the slides pulled up, because I, I really want to talk about that. Because really, if you go back to what enterprise architecture is, is about, it's about helping, you know, really four main areas of focus kind of in this framework that we focus on. And there's a particular order and there's a particular reason for it. And there's also pretty easy ways you can use to, um, uh, you know, to identify, you know, where the companies at and where you need to start focusing no that's cool i'm excited to dig in uh go give it a go give it a try now oh, and I see i think if... i can do it now yep i think i can do it now 
about that. Zoom, Zoom has Zoom has nailed the wall recording, allow the settings to be switched capabilities. I'll tell you that much. All right, let's see if it will let me read this. Okay. Right, can you see my screen? I cannot. Let's see. Um, what is it doing? Oh, wait, no, no, no. Okay, I guess I had to actually click the share button. Sorry, I'm an idiot. <laughs> First time on a Zoom call, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm using Teams so much now that uh, I'm sure we can move this over so you can see the slide. That, yeah, I actually do get a little confused when people use Google Meet and, um, you know, and Zoom, even though I think Zoom's actually pretty good. Zoom's great. I love Zoom. I think all the different ones definitely causes some confusion. I think they all try to purposely be a little bit different for mm -hmm. obvious, obvious business reasons, but um, I, I digress on that. Uh, awesome. So yeah, let's, let's hear about uh, kind of the different strategies you take as an enterprise architect. I guess learning sure, about sure. The, the different levels there was super helpful going from you know, a, a software architect to a solution architect all the way up to enterprise, which is more high level mm -hmm. business mission, strategic planning. Um, right, right. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're firmly out of like, you know, a tactician. You're now, you know, uh, expected to be a very strategic thinker, um, which I'll say, and I'll get into this later when I talk of, you know, I can maybe even talk about this a little bit, but I see a lot of the problem with enterprise architecture and why everybody gets frustrated when they hear that word is that there's a lot of people out there just, just really going through the motions. It frustrates a lot of EAs, senior chief architects, EAs and C, you know, CTOs, because yeah, yeah. You know, but it, it, that's not something, of course, that's confined to EAs, right? You have everybody that kind of, you know, that does this, but we're seeing particularly susceptible for some reason. Um, okay, so how do we mature an organization with a strategic focus? Um, and this is uh, a slide that could probably use some design work, but the content's good. <laughs> um, and this is how I see it, Brendan, right? And it's, it's spoken it's, like a true engineer, by the way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so um, the path to uh, permanent sustainable success for any company uh, is going up this ladder right here. You know, first off, it's, it's about operational excellence. And, you know, how do we really nail down our operations so that, you know, all these business processes that we're executing, um, you know, we know how to do them. We know how to do them well because, you know, if we're constantly dropping the ball on, on routine stuff, that's, that's just going to suck all our time. We're never going to have time to think strategically because we're going to be putting out fires all the time, right? Yep. Yep. Um, so, so what you do is you see a lot of, uh, you know, IT focused on, you know, uh, locking in processes, automating them, not just for productivity, but for quality sake, quality control sake, you know, as you scale. Yep. Um, Next kind of up the line, you know, once that's kind of locked down where we can actually start focus, you know, that kind of locks our, um, our, the quality and the scalability of our operations in place. So it won't suck our time. So now we can start to you know, think a little bit strategically. Everybody wants to make good products, right? If you're talking to me, you probably come up with a pretty good one, right? But here's the thing, you can't survive off that one product forever, right? You're going to have to like create a foundation for business execution so you can start to do this over and improve this product and let it, you know, mold to the market as the market's changing. And of course, what do you need for that? You need data. You need to understand your customer because you can't build a good product if you don't understand your customer. Sure. So customer intimacy, means, oh, customer int intimacy part uh, might kind of sound very, you know, salesy and such, but um, 
it's actually there's, there's a huge technical side to this, right? Because here's where big data comes in. Here's where you know IoT comes in. We're trying to collect at every touch point we have with our customers. How can we understand them better? You know, whether this is a little camera that uses AI that that says, you know, measures their facial expressions for sentiment as they walk away from your counter, or whether, you know, it's something just totally, you know, low budget, like on the way out the door, they have a smiley face and a frowny face that someone can hit as they're walking out on what their experience was like. You know, yep. sometimes even something as basic as that is still good information. Then if, you know, I don't need to tell anyone about, you know, the types of tracking devices that, you know, we can do in apps, right, to understand how people are using apps. And if you're unethical, how they're doing other things too, looking at you, Zuckerberg. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, but like I said, there, there's just a, a ton of cool stuff here. This is, you know, a lot of times where you start the interface with, you know, IoT and the, the physical world and how do we uh, put, you know, either natural collection points like when they're using these apps or create them, you know, with a smart camera or something like that, right? But we, it's all about collecting data to better understand the customer, to improve those relationships, have deep documented customer, you know, knowledge. And not just like documented facts here, guys, you know, we're talking about, you know, uh, data that we can analyze, right? So again, data and analytic platforms really become a big focus in this step. And you said um, you'll, you'll even attempt to build, if you need to, ways to better collect data. It's not just kind of leveraging their current whatever the company is, their current ways that they're interacting with oh, customers. Oh, yeah, no, I, that, that's one of the biggest things I do. Yeah, I build all that from scratch. That's, that's probably one of the funnest parts of my job, Brendan. Heard, um, heard. Especially like a me, who, you know, in metrology and stuff spent, you know, we can talk about that 10 to 12 years. A lot of that had to do with, you know, sensing and measurement, measurement uncertainty, right? So that's kind of like just a, a something I'm naturally pulled toward, right? Um, yep, makes so, sense. Step three, this is where someone like uh, Alex really kind of takes the reins a little bit more than me. It's about product leadership. It's okay. So we've collected all, you know, we've got the means uh, locked in place to start collecting all of this data on customers. And, you know, we, we've come up with some nice charts and stuff like that. But, you know, is it actually answering the questions that we need answered so that we can build better products, right? That's something that Alex would, you know, ask, you know, he's very much on the product management side, understanding the customer, um, you know, not only, you know, getting answers, but, you know, asking more questions and asking the right questions, because again, that'll feed back into the customer int intimacy. Are we collecting the data we need? Because a lot of times when you get to that step, you realize, you know, guys, you know, we're, we're speculating too much here. We, we really need to base this off of facts because this is a multi-million dollar project and we, you know, we don't need to be pulling solutions out of our rear end, right? Um, so, you know, once you achieve product leadership, that's where you, you know, a lot, there's a lot of, uh, you know, business process working there. There's a lot of, you know, team development going on there, really much more on the business side there. But now, once you do that, once you have to, you know, you kind of figure out this is how, you know, I, I guess get in a good groove is the, is the way I like to say it, right? You know, uh, the business, you know, not only do we have this data, but clearly like the people in the roles that are analyzing this data are starting to understand it. They're really starting to be able to pull that insight out. They know how to build products now, which is awesome, right? That's, and then here comes strategic agility. And this is in the end what it's all about, right? Because, you know, no one can, can, can compete on terms of scale with these, you know, huge companies with 200,000 employees and billion dollar sales, right? But yep. you can compete in terms of speed, 
right? If you can react to market conditions faster than they can, you know, all of a sudden you're the, you know, David, right? With the sling in your hand that can take down a Goliath, right? And they yep. become scared of you. And the reason that enterprise architects have good high paying roles is because these big companies are scared of startups. You know, they realize that yes, they have the skill, but that's kind of a negative when it comes, you know, when you're talking about economies of speed, right? Um, so, you know, strategic agility, this is where, uh, you start to hear about microservices and service-oriented architecture because what you're trying to do is you're trying to align your IT architecture to your business architecture, right? So, and we start to talk about you know business capabilities and you know which are supported by services, and we can mature certain you know or, or replace certain capabilities, you know the, the Legos that which make up this building block of an organization. Yeah. Um, and and this is a big thing. And this is where I really preach because. Oh, you, heard him talk to James a couple of times, you know, about, you know, he just goes off because a lot, you know, it's, it's not necessarily his fault because a lot of people, the only part they hear about uh, microservices is in, you know, is in terms of handling really complex loads like, you know, Netflix. And so it automatically goes into their mind. Well, only a Netflix would use this, you know, and maybe only like makes the sense for them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's absolutely not true. Now I'm not big on the whole pinball microservices architecture. I'm, you know, serverless event driven architectures are really like my drug lately. I'm really loving those. Right. Um, <laughs> but, 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 you know, we are really seeing a move back to service oriented architecture. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with this. And let me, I think, Maybe if we go to the next slide. Just one, one quick note on that too. I think uh, speaking of markets and, and finding a fit in a market, I don't know if anyone's doing this, but um, kind of case studies on the companies that have been able to be agile enough to beat these companies with 200,000, whether it was because the large company had either branded their way or technically had dug their way into a hole that was hard to get out of in order to pivot into the different direction based on the market yeah. conditions. That stuff is always brilliant. And um, I'm sure there's someone who has a YouTube account or something that does articles or something on this. But um, those stories are always fascinating. Figuring out that strategy as, to, okay, we don't have the resources you do, but we're going to run faster than you do in one direction, one very specific direction as quickly as we can. And we're going to beat you there. And then you're going to buy us for a smooth two bill. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, you know, and this is what enterprise architecture is about is like, how do we get the people and the processes and the IT all aligned and working with each other instead of against each other, right? So that they can pull something like this off without stepping on each other's toes and stumbling over each other and getting frustrated with each other, right? Um, so <clears throat> let's talk about a little bit of history of IT adoption and how this happens in organizations, because I think this, again, I think maybe when people talk about microservices and service-oriented architecture um, at a high level, it's going to start to make a little more sense once I go through this. Um, and this isn't even necessarily about, um, I say evolution of IT adoption, but really it's it's not even about IT. It's about the relationship be, you know, between business and IT, between boardrooms, right, and their IT departments. Uh, and almost everyone goes in this order, uh, right? And let me talk about what that order is. The first, uh, basically any business, especially like mom and pop businesses, but even a lot of startups and such, right? Uh, they view IT as a cost. Okay. And generally what you see here is you just, you know, people are using a couple of enterprise apps, right? You know, okay. So they've got their Salesforce or Microsoft Dynamics, right? They've got their financial accounting systems. These, like, you know, as far as when it comes to just, you know, using software to, you know, for your HR department or for your finance department or something like that, um, those problems are solved, right? I mean, you don't need to have an in 
internal IT staff to do that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But but basically, you know, the company's view of IT is, okay, I know we have, you know, I'm not crazy about IT or software, but we have to have this stuff because everybody has it. So we're going to get this software and we're just going to have some support agreement. The strategy is to outsource IT. Whoever gives us the lowest price wins, you know, because, you know, I know they're not exactly the same and I'm oversimplifying it, but basically the general concept is uh, this is almost commoditized. Therefore, if company A gives me $2 less than company B, I'm going to company A, right? Um, yep. So you've got that. Uh, and then people start to kind of move into, okay, well, you know, we solve these problems over here. Maybe we can rationalize IT. Maybe we can start, foc instead of focusing on cost, we start focusing on return on investment, right? So, so you, you see a lot of economies of scale here. So, you know, and what I mean by that is that you have processes that are repeated over and over and over again, right? So that if you autom you know, automate that process, even if it costs maybe $10,000, $20,000 to do it, well, you know, within 1.5 years, that's paid off and you're already, you know, in a positive, right? That's so, a you know, and it's pretty easy to notice the difference between two of these because you, especially in a large organization, you just look who the senior IT person, whether it's the CTO or CIO, who does that person report to? Because if you report to the CFO, guess what? CFOs only care about costs. You can automatically know <laughs> that whether they want to admit it or not, if their chief IT person, you know, is reporting to the CFO, IT is viewed as a cost center by that company. You don't want to work for this company. It's not if you're an internal IT guy, right? Um, CO, you know, hey, you know, if you're, you don't even have to be super into IT here because this is where like a lot of, uh, you know, low code, no code solutions come in, right? Because you're automating a process. A lot of times that requires a lot more domain knowledge than it does technical knowledge. You can, you know, especially if it's just like an internal, you know, HR department that wants to kind of, you know, again, citizen IT developers are perfectly okay in that realm, you know, let, let's, let's not go crazy with no code or low code guys, right? But yeah. in this realm, that does pay off a lot of times, right? You can maybe get custom software for your big projects and a lot of smaller ones, you know, Microsoft Power Apps, show these guys how to, you know, just you know, connect to SharePoint, do whatever they do need to do to, to kind of automate some of their internal processes. Um, now, the third one is where the salaries really start to go up. And, and yeah, and basically you start to see, uh, I think, you, you know, the boardroom is really starting to pay attention to IT a lot more, but instead of rationalizing, here's how we, it's not about cost cutting. Now it's about actually creating value, right? And this is, uh, and, you know, a lot of this times this has to do with customer experience. Right. So, you know, uh, so if we talked about the asset level, this is us standardizing operational excellence, right? On that previous slide. Yep. When we go to partner, okay, now we're about creating value. How are we creating value? We're understanding our customers better. We're giving them an app download so we can, you know, understand how they're using our products better, right? Because, you know, it's always easier to track things <laughs> in, in like, you know, if you have a mobile app or something like that. But it, yeah, like I said, the, the big thing here is we're leveraging customer experience. Now people are actually starting to bring people in. They're starting to pay these designers, you know, uh, you know, especially like front end developers, you know, like Harry, right? Lots of money, right? And it's not because they love art and pretty apps. It's because it improves the customer experience. And statistically, customers are willing to pay more if they have a better experience with your product, right? Yeah. Um, now... This is where a lot of people, you know, a lot of people don't move beyond this, it, you know, and, and that's okay. A lot, some people don't need to, right? Some people just find a little niche that gives them a nice little income and they're happy to sit right there, you know, whether it's, you know, a small company or something like that. But there, there's other companies that have like 
are really in a company that, you know, a market that's blowing up and uh, maybe they even know, or maybe they even want to be picked up and bought out by a bigger company, right? But you want to race up so you can race up the valuation of your company. Um, so, and we talk, go back to that kind of economies of speed, right? This is where it gets really interesting. If you don't already have an architect or an architecture team, uh, you generally have that definitely when IT becomes an enabler. Right? Because then it's not just about improving, you know, cutting costs and creating value. Um, IT is your business. This is where you start to have boardrooms that acknowledge that every company is a technology company now. And if you haven't acknowledged that, you're going to get left behind, buddy. Right? Um, yeah. And this is where the CIO is, is or CTO is reporting directly to the CEO. They are part of the boardroom, right? Not just kind of shoved in the corner. Yeah, you're kind of executive, but you're kind of not. <laughs> right? Uh, and and this is where enterprise architecture becomes really, really important because, um, again, you know, this is where IT is expected to develop technology strategies that perfectly align with the business strategy, which is probably one of the hardest things you can ever do, right? It, even at the engineering level, how many times do you, you complete something on time, on budget, and, you know, the customer like, looks at it and says, yeah, this is functional, but not exactly what I was looking for, right? You know what I'm saying? You know. Okay, yeah, but multiply that times, I don't know, a thousand in terms of budget and the money and offset, right? You know, uh, risk man, you know, it, it, it makes sense to to spend money on risk management there. Uh, yeah, regular, having, having a flop at that scale is certainly different than it is when you're you yeah, know, a startup and you deliver an okay feature. Yeah, yeah you know, and, and Gregor Hot, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, Gregor Hot talks about who's uh, worked. He's the chief architect for Google again now. He worked for Allianz as well, which is you know, huge, like Honeywell-sized company. Mm -hmm. He talks about that, you know, architecture is about selling options, right? So if you know anything about, um, you know, stock trading and such, an option is basically you buy something at a certain price and, you know, or you agree to, you know, sell it at, you know, some future date or something, right? And, yep. you know, it could go up, it could go down, you know, but, you know, and there's a certain price for that, you know, the more volatility, you know, usually the more, um, you know, the more that option would cost you. And I think that's a really good kind of analogy because yes, you're kind of spending money to have the option to change your mind later. That's really what architecture is about, right? The reason you're spending some extra money, you know, and, and doing this properly is so uh, kind of in an object oriented way, you can take your, you know, take a component out of your business and swap it with another component and everything's still running smoothly, right? Um, but like, for example, you know, you, you might uh, be, uh, you know, doing some digital signature thing with DocuSign. One of your business capabilities is that, you know, you can handle like electronic signatures or something, right? In yep. the future, some better, uh, and then let's say, you know, five years from now, all of a sudden it's a big fad for everybody to have their retina scanned or something for that, right? You know, we want the ability to keep up with that, to just swap that out without updating 20 applications and all of this stuff. You know, of course, one of them is going to be written in some code that, you know, everybody stopped using 15 years ago and how are you going to integrate that or make, make some up, you know, right. You know where I'm going with this, you know, legacy systems are hard to update. You want to have this kind of. The modularity. You want to have it be very modular. Yeah. yeah. And like I said, this is where service-oriented architectures come in, you know, um, you know, and I'm, I, small companies don't need a pinball, you know, microservices, but we can get like a nice, you know, service-oriented architecture. This to the granularity that their business capabilities are kind of you know broken out to, uh, so that it's kind of aligned and has the same granularity as the business architecture. And you know, you, like I said, almost like Legos, right? Just like 
why do we do object-oriented programming instead of writing, you know, 5,000 lines in a single file? Well, because it makes it easier to swap stuff out. Right? Makes it, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think this, this chart is actually great. Um, evolution of IT adoption and successful enterprises. The, the, as you go to the right, it's, you can see how important IT becomes for any given business. And I think seeing it through the lens of the CFO or the CEO or the CEO or the CEO is really, this is actually quite clever. I hadn't seen this before, but um, economies of speed is also a really clever term. I hadn't heard that one before. I think most people are familiar with economies of scale, um, but this is a really nice evolution. I like this a lot. So uh, yeah, and I wanna just uh, <clears throat> give credit where credit's due. This is a modified version of a chart that Gregor Hopp um, did at, I wanna say it was, like, he, he did at some conference in 2017. Um, but he threw a chart that looked kind of is very similar to this. Like I said, I've, I've added and changed it a little bit. But um, you know, if you like this chart, then you'd probably like following people like Greg Hop, you know, Gregor Hop, um, Eben Hewitt, uh, all those types, because you get a lot of you know nice insight. Because I thought the same thing when I saw that chart. I'm like, hey, this is actually really insightful. This isn't just another slide. Let me just go and screenshot that and put it in a folder. I'm going to look at that. And yeah, and one it, note later, <laughs> and it takes a second too. But I, you know, as you were explaining that, I think you did a good job to articulate mm -hmm. the the growth and the value of eventually becoming a modular tech business. Right, like very right. very important. Oh yeah, actually, I was supposed to actually click through this as I was doing it, but you know, I, I don't know, I got carried away. You know, but I want to say, you know, in, when you're in a cost center, you're what you see is people are, you know, um, cutting costs by adopting enterprise apps. Um, in the asset, what are you seeing? You're seeing a more focus on operational excellence, right? Uh, when as a partner, now it's about creating value and understanding your customer better, and then it's about really, it's all about strategic agility, right? Um, and now say all that to say this is what enterprise architecture is about brandon but really as you can imagine this is not one big waterfall project right you know there's several iterations we got to go through this is about change management this is about changing organization and i don't need to tell you when you start making you know changes to uh you know critical business processes uh part of their value chain uh you don't do a good job, things could really go bad, right? <laughs> really so bad, right? One question I have for you here is, so I can I can very easily see how you went from the, the four steps on your last slide all the way up mm -hmm. to the strategic agility. Mm -hmm. I could see certain decisions being made at any one of those four steps or in any one of these four categories as a business evolves, mm -hmm. um, messing with what you did previously. Uh, how often do you find yourself making mm -hmm. some decision at the strategic agility, uh, strategic agility level that then affects customer intimacy. Or I think probably what would make most sense to me is operational excellence might have a little bit of a, a, a tug on it where it's like, oh, okay, like because we're doing this, we're gonna really have to focus on this piece of our operational excellence, excellence now. Yeah, I'll say, you know, it's an iterative approach as we go through this and every, and, and you know, a, a smaller company can't just like literally stop work and focus on operational excellence, right? You know, we have to kind of do this, you know, we have to say, what's the MVP, the minimum viable, you know, product of our operational excellence so that we're not going to run into problems later, right? And every time we go to systematically change something, we're going to go back down and review this again, right? You know, uh, and each, you know, and we're going to do it in that order. Okay, what changes do we need to make operational excellence wise to make sure that when we scale this or do roll this out, like quality isn't impacted, product, productivity isn't impacted, right? Um, we're always going to drop down. And each time you're, you're absolutely right. And that's for, you know, it's, it's actually cool that, you know, you had the intuition to see that. 
Um, but yeah, we definitely go through each one and say, okay, what kind of changes? Because we we don't want this new change up here to totally you know negatively impact operational excellence and start throwing it off, right? Um, yeah, so exactly. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so yeah, but you know, I, again, what I kind of wanted to circle back to is that so when I'm doing enterprise architecture, this you know I guess that's the the high level of it, but. Of course, when you go to execute this stuff, it's a, it's really about change management. You know, uh, you know, yes, it's straight up like business change management, project management, etc. Over here, and then it comes down to how do we systematically uh, implement changes in organizations? So, okay, we went through that ladder thing or that chart, right? We figured out where we were at. We figured out where we want to be. Um, okay, we've got to make some changes. How the hell do we do that in a systematic manner, right? That's systematic the being being the key. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Repeatable. How we just again, not flying by the seat of our pants. Every decision, you know. Of course, yes, we're going to have to make some assumptions sometimes, right? You can't have all the facts, but we need to make due diligence, right, to make sure that we're really kind of looking at everything before we start running forward and start destroying one department or another because we didn't really take their concerns in hand. Um, and if you would give me a quick break to go grab a bottle of water or something, I'm, I've actually, this is actually cool, even though I did it in PowerPoint, this is actually more like a whiteboard presentation. And so it's actually going to have some animations and I'm going to show you how I model a business and then how I use this to, to start, you know, to basically, it's a real high level of how I do my planning in almost like cartoonish manner. One, one question I would have for you, I guess, before you dive into yeah, how sure. you systematically implement the changes here. So mm -hmm. would be, I guess, are these clients reaching out to you at Fangine? Do you source clients and look for them? Is it a lot of you and Alex doing client outreach and stuff like this? Or is it your part of the larger? Man, we, it, we still don't have a website up. We've just got like a coming soon because like we don't need to do any marketing because we like just word of mouth and such. And, you know, we uh, Alex sets most of this stuff up. He's the one that does like, you know, the business research to say, you know, based on the markets, here's where we should go. I mean, that, that that's totally his field, right? Um, I let him do that. You know, he he's my Steve Jobs. I'm the Steve Wozniak of this company, right? Yeah. Again, yeah, that's that's the, yeah. the, the the business founder and the tech founder. That's cool. I mean, I've been hearing, I mean, more and more lately, honestly, about uh, some of my friends who are founders of things talking about just how much of their business is just organically funneled into them or how much of it is just like word of mouth, that kind of, that kind of a, an approach I'll to tell you our strategy when we want to go into somewhere new though i mean i'll tell you right now what we do is we find like who's like the biggest fish out there right you know this you know in some area and we go to them you know this is like like a red bull or, or volkswagen group or something we go to them we say okay guys here's what we're going to do we're going to come in and we're just going to do like some all this amazing work we sell them on it and we say here's the thing you know we're going to give you this at half the cost of normal and if we don't succeed, you don't pay us a penny. We're going to invest six to nine months into this, right? But here's the catch. Here's the catch. You've got name and brand recognition. And I want you to basically tell other people when we refer to them to you, what we did for you. They, we want you to tell them the measured results that we provided to you. And, you know, when someone from these types of companies, you know, you can use them as a reference. I mean, at that point, you kind of like all you need to do is just continue your track record of success, right? No doubt. So, so you're really looking for, you know, provided by Fangine or some kind of a stamp yeah. from them. Yeah, right. That's awesome. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Except you go in there. You know, the the reason, you know, decisions at the boardroom level are often made 
not really on who's maybe slightly more productive or something like that. It's all really about risk management. You know, who can we trust to run with this and not drop the ball? And a lot of times if we go in there saying, hey, we're going to take on all the risk here. If you just let us do this, they're willing to let us do this because we basically just made ourselves the lowest risk option for them, right? Because we already said we're not going to take a penny, right? If we don't succeed and do what we say we're going to do. You know, because a lot of people are out there. I mean, I think, I think Alex looked it up the other day. I can't remember the exact number, but it was something like just in Germany alone, there's like 25,000 consultants or something. Like, you know, there's everybody's out there saying they can do things, but, you know, even the ones that aren't necessarily snake oil salesmen, like if even the ones that have the best intentions just can't pull it off a lot of times. I mean, it's just the truth of the matter, right? And how do you separate yourself? How do you, you know, visibly put yourself, you know, you can be confident as you want in a boardroom, but somebody else says, I'm so confident that I'm going to say, you don't have to pay me a dime if I don't deliver. Right. <laughs> no, that, that's great. Yeah. It's like, um, I think, uh, you know, as you're dealing with larger, bigger clients too, the, that mm-hmm. level of confidence, uh, resonates with them. It's like, if you're, if you're a financial planner and you're dealing with like one of the best attorneys, uh, for like, I, I don't know, it's for, mass torture cases like you saw someone bought roundup and they got poison from it they got cancer something god forbid right um you go to someone like that who's making very like a ton of money on these payouts and you say hi i'm here to provide financial services for you and you lowball them on how much your services even cost um that can be almost offensive to them in a way where it's like hold on Uh, and i think those those types of cells where you were going in there with the confidence saying, if I don't deliver in a very similar way in this industry, um, it's on me, all of it's on me. I think that's something that's very attractive, obviously in the boardroom and as far as the CFO is concerned with, oh, they're gonna not charge us a penny if things go wrong here, great. Yeah, yeah, kind of, you know, what you want to have in their mind is what do we have to lose type attitude, right? If you can get them in that mindset, then they're gonna give you an opportunity. Just, you know, remember under promise over deliver. That's it, that's the MO, yep. Yeah. Rock on. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's talk about how we uh, systematically implement change with an almost cool cartoonish type of modeling uh, whiteboard, right? So here's your organization, right? Uh, and as an engineer, I'm going to model this organization. And what's the easiest way to start modeling, Brandon? Pen and, pen and paper, baby. Well, I'll just say we draw a box. <laughs> we draw a box around it. This is a component. Um, <laughs> you know, right? On um, pen and paper, it would just be a little more squiggly. Okay, that, yeah, that's where yeah, I'm that, going. Yeah, but you know, hey, you put a box around it as an engineer and say, what are my inputs and what are my outputs? And sure. at, at a high level, why is this the case, right? You know, that's how you kind of start to understand components, right? Yeah. So I, I do that. I say, okay, let's just draw a box around your company. And let's say uh, this represents your organizations. What are the inputs and outputs, right? Well, one thing, your company is going to have access channels by which it interacts with the outside world. This can be mobile apps. This can be, you know, salespeople that are actually going out and talking, or maybe salespeople that are answering the phone, you know, the, the ways in which your company interacts with the world. And then, of course, there's different market segments out there that your organization is trying to reach, right? And we can already start thinking about, okay, yeah, yeah, like maybe we can make personas off of this, right? Here's one diagram that might be helpful. Yep. Another one is mapping customer journeys because customer journeys are how customers, you know, because, you know, the journey from being, you know, a prospect or, you know, in just entering your sales pipeline to actually becoming a customer and modeling those can be really helpful for understanding organizations. 
And this is all the legwork you're doing after you've signed paperwork to work with someone. This is you will you will go through this if it's not already predefined by them, or even you might even re go over it. Yeah, yes. Well, customer journeys and stuff. That's much more. That's one modeling thing that uh, that like Alex is going to do more than me, right? Yep. Uh, because that's more of a you know I'll take a look at their stuff, but I'm usually not the one facilitating that in particular. I'll say that particularly what we just talked about the market segments and the customer journeys and stuff. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, I'm very aware of that, but that's generally much more in Alex's corner than mine. That's Steve Jobs, not Steve Walsh. Gotcha. Right. Heard. Exactly. 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 Okay. And then, you know, you have products and services. That's your outputs, right? And, you know, if you found product market fit, it's because that product and or service is providing some value that your customer is actually willing to pay for. And that's how we define value. Things that customers are willing to pay for. Not that they think are cool, but they think are so cool, they're actually going to hand you a couple of dollars for it, right? Right. Um, okay, so, you know, and then, uh, you know, you're not in a static environment, right? You know, the, the organizations, even if you get it all figured out and you have that product market fit, guess what? You're in a constantly changing environment and you've got to adapt, right? Um, you know, you've got new competition. All of a sudden, some new regulation gets dropped on you. GDPR, right? I mean, how many people had to scramble, right? When GDPR, you know, well, maybe a little bit less here in the in the U.S., but certainly in the EU. Um, you know, you have emerging technologies, you know, coming out. You know, um, you know, I don't know that a whole lot of people are uh, making money off of selling CD burners anymore, right? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, customer expectations change. Right. You know, you have an apple that hits the industry and all of a sudden everybody else has got to raise the bar. Otherwise, nobody wants to talk to them, you know, and yep. then you, you don't want to be Blackberry. Right. <laughs> um, and then, you know, just simple natural disaster. I mean, even, you can even talk about COVID. Right. You know, in the pandemic response and, all, you know, how companies had to quickly adapt to something like that. So, yeah. Um, you know, it's funny going off of that one, just as a, an example. I don't know if many had heard about this one, but. I believe it was Toyota. Um, when there was earthquakes going on in Japan, I believe back in the 70s or 80s, um, they learned which parts of their supply chain were the most fragile. And it ended up being that it was the processing chips. So they were one of the very few companies who had learned that lesson the hard way back because of natural disasters. In that case, it was an earthquake. In this case, it was because of COVID modern day, but that was the reason that Toyota is still pumping out the production of cars compared to other manufacturers because they learned to become anti-fragile to these sort of supply chain disruptions. Really interesting. So have you heard of Lean, you know about Lean Six Sigma? I haven't heard of it, no. So Lean Six Sigma is basically, uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm a certified Six Sigma green belt, which just, it's a, it's a style of, of systematic process improvement that any, you know, if, if you're a manager, like I think band three or four and up uh, at Honeywell, you know, you have like six months to a year to get your green belt. If you don't have one, you're terminated. You know, it's that important to them. Sure. So uh, this, you know, the, all, you know, if you just look up Six Sigma stuff, you're going to start, start finding all kinds of stuff about it. And I just wanted to tell you about this because this was all born from Toyota. The Toyota production system is what they called it. Basically, Honeywell. I mean, all these huge Fortune 100 companies, they're all developing, you know, implementing their own management operating systems, but they're all basically doing, you know, basically replicating what they learned from Toyota. So what you're saying is like, of zero surprise to me, given the history of, you know, of them and how, you know, basically Toyota is literally what gave most of the world their understanding of how to really efficiently uh, look a framework for, you know, evaluating a company's uh, business processes and how to improve them over time in a strategic manner. 
Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting stuff. And I think a lot of people think of Ford when they think of, you know, companies that are like, had obviously invented the, the, the pipelines and, you know, the processing lines for all this stuff and, you know, operational excellence. You talk about like, how do we increase the efficiency of this thing? But yeah, Toyota is um, kind of the, the case study num- numero uno, the, the big guy in the yeah. room for that kind of we stuff. We invented it, they perfected it. That's the way I see it. I mean, it's, you know, it, I just can't really say enough about like Toyota and just Japanese culture in, in general when it comes to, you know, to this type of stuff, because I mean, we're literally all just learning from them. They are just, they're some really smart guys. I do want to say this, like uh, aside from an IT uh, you know, certification, anybody that wants to be a solutions architect or an enterprise architect needs to get a Six Sigma certification. Uh, you, you don't have to go crazy. Don't go black belt. Just the most basic certification of green belt, right? That is going to be so, so helpful. Anyone that wants to learn about business architecture, again, first step, go get your green belt certification. It's, it's a really, really helpful for understanding how to look at, you know, things from the business perspective. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen, step one, get going. <laughs> All right. So, uh, okay. So we talked about this changing environment, but let's kind of drop that right now and just focus on the organization. And I'm going to ask, uh, a real simple question, uh, you know, what is your organization? What's it comprised of? I mean, no, no wrong answers. I'm just saying, you know, if I were to ask you, Brandon, how do you look at organizations? What, what is inside this box for you? What, what would you say? Yeah, you've got certainly people problems. You've got your expenses. You've got, you know, uh, all the other assets that you hold. Um, I don't know. To me, the first thing that comes to mind is like the the classic business model with the nine different sections with kind of some of these things you have outlined that are outside here, but um, I guess, I guess we're spoiling it. Pe- people and technology. <laughs> well, no, I, no, listen, there, there's no wrong answer for that really. Cause there's a lot, it's, you know, there's just so much going on in there. It's just about like, how do you conceptually divide it up? Right. You know? Uh, and I want to say that for me, I think the most important thing from an inner, you know, architect's perspective, particularly an enterprise architect is to, to view it as we want to do it, just keep it as simple as possible, right? And that is, there are people slash roles that are executing business processes that are supported by technology. If we just keep that in mind, it is people executing processes supported by technology. Yeah, we like can make it. all the changes in the world. We can change our strategy. We can mature our organization, and it's still going to be people executing processes supported by technology, right? Um, yeah, sure. It's going to be people with enhanced skill sets. It's going to be processes that are simpler and more efficient. It's going to be more modern technology, but it's still going to be this, right? True. And it really helps to you when you're making a lot of other strategic decisions, if you can kind of keep this idea in your mind, right? Now, we get a little bit close to reality because it's not really that simple when you start looking into a real organization, right? In fact, it's not even this neat, right? It starts to get all kinds of crazy because we've got, you know, these people that have domain knowledges and then we've got these databases from this app and, you know, it just, it starts to get kind of messy, right? That's it. Um, yeah, we, we just went from 8-bit to 64 there. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it, it comes down to where you know, the, the question that everybody comes down to, right, is how do we make sense of this? Like, oh my God, you know, we need to systematically change this. This just seems like uh, so such a huge thing. I don't know where to start, right? Right. <clears throat> um, so here's what I like to think of, because, you know, if I think about, okay, so we've got this org this, in this constantly changing environment that's incredibly complex, and we need to try to understand it. When I think of something else that's incredibly complex, lives in a changing environment, right? The first thing that comes to my mind is the human body, right? 
right? Because we're a very complex, even with all our technology, we don't totally understand every little thing, right? Not even close, yeah. Um, yeah, not even close. But think about it. How, when we're in school, how do we learn about the body, right? We think about it in layers, right? We think about it in terms of skeletal, muscular, nervous system, you know, circulatory system, right? And in the same way, we can try to start making sense out of this stuff by layering it, by looking at word charts and process charts and system diagrams and capability models, right? This, these are the, I mean, you can get into a lot of models and such, but these are like the, some of the core diagrams that are required, right? Now, now, how deep you go with your system diagrams or your process maps, okay, that, that's a different story, right? But you will have these types in any type of systematic transformation. Yeah. At yeah. least if I'm in charge, you will. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, you know, just to kind of say it's all about people, processes, technology, right? So why, are I say, why am I saying that these are the essential diagrams you got to have, right? Because we've got people that are executing processes that are supported, you know, by technology. And any change is going to mean, you know, we have to think about how we're changing people, how we're changing processes and how we're evolving this technology at a minimum. You know, every situation you're going to have some other stuff, but you're always going to have this. Yeah. Right? And when we look at each model, what we do is, you know, in the process maps, uh, you know, we have linked to who, what are the roles that are actually interacting and using these processes, right? And what is the technology that's being employed, right, in this process? To do Which it, makes yeah. it cool because now I can go to this diagram and I'll say, oh, okay, I need to go look at this org structure or something over here, right? Uh, because this process, you know, affects these people, right? That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really nice thing to be able to do, right? To say, we're going to change this process. Who does it impact? What does it impact, right? Those are yep. the first questions out of the gate. And these are the types of models that help us do that. You know, the same way I could look at something, you know, a piece of technology and I could see, you know, kind of cross linkages over there to know what processes uh, are, are used, are using this technology and what people are using this technology. Yep. And the last diagram, uh, the capability model, this is where, this is probably the most important diagram for uh, developing a technology strategy. When we think about like the products and services that an organization offers, it can deliver these products and services because it has certain capabilities. Uh, it actually makes more sense to move this down here. Okay, so we basically represent the the um, uh, the, the org's capabilities, and this is probably the simplest diagram you could ever make because it's just boxes with other little boxes inside it, right? So you might have the ability to, you know. I, I, just to go super basic, something that everybody used, you know, the ability to uh, select and hire candidates, right? That would be a tiny box inside of HR management or something, right? Sure, now, sure. Right? You kind of just kind of break it down smaller. But what we do with this is um, we basically put references for each uh, capability on what people, processes, and technology are supporting that capability, right? Yeah, and like so it. for each capability, we just throw all the people, you know, references to all the people, processes, and technology uh, together so that I can, see, you know, have a reference for that. That way, when Mr. Executive comes over here and says, okay, you know, how can we do blank? My first step is I turn to the capability model, their organization, and start deducing the work required, right? Which, which one of these capabilities are going to have to be evolved or matured or what capabilities do we need to had in order to deliver on that business strategy, right? That's where kind of it all starts to, I mean, that, that's the, really the starting point, right? And I think a lot of people go wrong 
because they just say, hey, what's your business strategy and start taking notes? That's not how you do it. I mean, unless you're just really lucky <laughs> and you pull it off. Like, I don't know how to do it like that. I'll tell you that the most effective surefire way is to make the conversation initially about capabilities, right? Because well, from and, there- you the systematic parts of this are starting to, to certainly shine through and uh, kudos to whoever made this uh, the the cartoon step through is, is class I really like it, but it is so it is kind of, this, of I, I actually made this. Um, but no, I want to say that some of this I got the like the human body example I got you know from another guy I can give you a, a link to his YouTube he's not very technical but he's uh, is Raj Ramesh I think is his name. Uh, but you know, on the business architecture side, like he he has some really uh, he all he does is puts out like a whiteboard video every two weeks or something, and um, it's always and I subscribe to his channel. He's uh, yeah, he he always just makes the most complicated things very simple, which architects are always really good at, right? You have to be a really good communicator. You have to take this complex stuff and just put it in very simple terms for executives, right? It's not the executives don't have the capability to understand. It's just they don't have the time to understand. They need to understand exactly how this impacts them and what they can do with it in like five minutes. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, so, and to that end, so yeah, I, I, don't, that, I don't want to mess up your flow. Keep, keep going through it, man. I like it. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. So after taking some time to properly research and kind of understand the challenges, this is where I start to develop a solution in form of a target architecture. And all that, and, and it, what's the physical product of the target architecture is basically a new set of, you know, org diagrams, process maps, basically what the future state's going to look like, right? Yep. Yeah, so what things can we tweak within our our kind of capability model, which is made up of the people, the processes and the technology that will allow us to have this capability, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if we're going to have those capabilities that are impacted by the change, right, that, that you know, and, and may, hey, maybe some completely new capabilities too, we're going to have to say, you know, you know, uh, yeah, how are we going to handle this, right? And this is where like some of the microservices ideas of like, you know, not everybody using one big, huge SQL database, but everybody having their own database. It's really nice because upon this new cap this, this new capability, maybe you should be using this newer modern database, right? But if you're all using the same database, then that means all your other stuff has to be updated too. And all of a sudden your hands are tied, right? Um, you know, yeah, <laughs> this comes back to the strategic ability part, right? No, and I'll tell you, by the way, so I, I for, for the listeners here, uh, I've always been a little bit impressed. I, I knew you were an enterprise architect, but Brian is consistently talking about very low level software engineering bits, database decisions. He was going on earlier about um, microservices and whatnot. whatnot. Um, the example you just had kind of laid out there makes complete sense now as to where and why that's valuable for what you're doing. Um, cause you, you will need to look at, okay, if, if we did implement a microservice architecture here, or if we did separate the database out into whatever components, it would give us the capability to execute on whatever the executive was asking for. That's, that's great. That makes perfect you sense. You sound like you're talking to a CEO, Brandon, you're a natural man. You're an architect <laughs> Hire me. Where is, yeah. where do I sign? <laughs> no, literally, you know, I, you know, it, it would not be out of place if I use the exact words you just used, right? You know, yes, it almost sounds like you're being a little bit condescendingly simple, right? But that's what a lot of people that make, you know, that hold the, you know, the purse strings, that's the kind of explanation they're looking for. They explain it like I'm five, right? And I think they, they're smart enough to surround themselves with people who they know if it's explained simply to them, 
it's not because there's lack of knowledge on the other person's end. It's that they trust them to give them the condensed version of a well thought out strategy. And that is what's going to enable them to do and move as quickly as they need to be. When you start getting to the boardroom, it's really about trust, right? I mean, people need to trust you. Don't ever talk out of your rear end. That's like one of my golden rules. Like if you if you don't know, you say you don't know. Yeah, own it. Do yep. not pretend that you know something because it'll. You know, someone catches you talking out of your ear in one time, and they're never going to trust your opinion on anything again. So yep. you know, just, yeah, that's a really big thing because you know, especially. I mean, that's important when you're dealing with you know ten thousand or a hundred thousand dollars, but particularly you get a project that's like you start measuring it in the millions. I mean, it takes a lot of trust, right? And, no, no. you know, really a lot of times getting new opportunities about is about good communication, uh, clear communication and being very honest and genuine with people so that they trust you. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and uh, to go, to go on a, a, a less serious note here, I, I reckon uh, the, the CEO responding a few tweaks and it'll be perfect. Probably you never hear that, right? You get it done the first time. No, I do hear that all the time. <laughs> Alex says just a few tweaks and it'll be perfect. And then, you know, spends two hours ranting and gives me a list of how he wants to completely change the product because that's how he is he's a sales guy so he, he wants to pretend to present it as a positive exactly no him. he frames I it that's, no that's sometimes you need it just to be like all right let's just break the walls here just so we can get a, po a positive conversation yeah. going on that's great yeah so you know after you know we we make sure we're kind of aligned on this you know uh and you know maybe i need you because know, a lot you know real world conversations are okay listen i can give you what you want but if you're willing to be a little more flexible over here i can save you twenty thousand dollars you know it's something like that right and you, you have those little conversations right yep. but anyway you know hopefully you did it you're pretty close to the mark uh and you work it out and now it's time to they say okay execute what the heck do you do right um Pretty simple actually you know you if you've got a current doc you know what the current state is documented and you've got the target architecture then you just go through the okay what changes to people processes technologies do we need right um and you do a gap analysis and then that gap analysis is basically the input for your project planning right so here's all the you know those that gap analysis basically becomes the milestones for your project planning right so then you just kind of divide that work up into the natural milestones and you know you this is when you begin executing on it right so we hit our maybe intermediate architectures or maybe just the project milestones you're doing some status reporting but you're kind of in project you know at this point i've got my project manager hat on right more than anything if i'm the one that's actually managing these projects sometimes i am sometimes. and that's a good point too though the different roles that you have to play right you're, you're switching like you said your cap because you're going from very high level to like all right now I got to execute on this. And it's, it is interesting. So you do step down to, you're not just supplying the high level plan and what pieces could be shifted. You do go down to the lower level and actually get your hands dirty a little bit or maybe a lot yeah, of it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it. I mean, I also take out the trash and, you know, go take a train from Basel to Zurich because somebody ran out of supplies, right. And doing my work on the, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, we all wear a lot of hats, right? <laughs> no, that's great. And you know what? Um, so I've worked with a fair amount of Southern people from Brian's Brian's from Georgia, about Georgia, right? Yeah. yeah so sure. Brian's from Georgia and I've worked with a fair amount of people in the kitchens. I do spend a lot of time in the kitchens growing up. Mm -hmm. And um, there was this guy, James Wright, who was pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get it done. He, he was yeah. able to pivot like nobody I had ever seen. If we were in the kitchen and we ran out of all the, all the salmon fillets for service that night, mm -hmm. he'd be the one going to the restaurant next door saying, Hey, you guys got any fillets for us? Or he just got it done. Someone was hot yeah. in the kitchen. He'd make a makeshift, like he put a bunch of ice in a bucket and put a little fan in front of it and say, there's your AC and just keep going. Yeah. 
it, it just yeah. got it done but uh yeah <laughs> carry I on mean, yeah I, I love people like that you know that's the kind of people you want in leadership positions the ones that that don't like come to you with excuses they just come to you with fun war stories that they can tell you how they actually solve this problem right <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and yeah and you almost glorify it because you look back on it and you're like no that was that was awesome yeah, I can tell you some stories there. You know, you want to talk about fortune favors the bold. Like, I, I, I don't know. Some of these I'm actually even afraid to tell you on like recorded video because like they really borderline <laughs> foolish, my friend. I mean, they came out positive. Like, I, I took, you know, I always somehow come out on top. When I look back, I was just like, wow, man. Like, I don't know yep. if I should have done that. <laughs> yeah, we'll save it for after hours. That's awesome. <laughs> no, right, right. Okay, so now target architecture achieved. What does that actually mean for this organization, right? Uh, what this means is the organization is operating, you know, what we said before, you know, uh, we're operating with people that have expanded skill sets and knowledge now. They're executing more simple and efficient processes, hopefully, if you did your job right. Uh, and they're using technology that's more modern and evolvable. And which means that the organization is effectively upgraded with new capabilities, which often means more revenue streams, right? So, you know, that's why I kind of like to show like uh, new something to symbolize like new, a new product or service that could be, you know, added because, you know, because of that capability. Yep. Um, you know, and uh, presuming we actually managed to our plan, we all end up happy, right? <laughs> um, yeah, Alex really loves when I, you know, put this in here. <laughs> She's like, is that well, how it really plays out? And I'm like, in my mind. <laughs> no, yeah. So I guess um, one question I have here, so it probably sounds, obviously if you've delivered on, so you're, we, we as Fangie and you, you and Alex, you have your systematic approach to improving certain parts of the business. And assuming you deliver on that promise, I imagine the amount of repeat business you have with any given client is probably quite high. Like they'll probably yeah. want to keep you. You've obviously established that trust. You already know all the bits and pieces of the business. Um, right. So, I, I mean, how do you manage scaling that when you probably have so many repeat customers? It's like, well, we, we've got our hands full and it's good. Or are you Consistently, consistently trying to throw gas on your own business. Uh, how do you scale out? And when you have so um, much repeat business, that's so keeping you keeping you busy. That's actually a really good question, right? Because I mean, that's something that Alex and I are kind of struggling with, because we're talking about, okay, you know, we need to actually kind of turn the lens inward and look at ourselves, right? How do we actually, you know, you know, scale some of this? Because, yep. um, you know, you know, it's kind of, you know, a lot of this, you can't get out of showing up face to face in a boardroom, right? And I can't clone myself digitally, right? You know, so you know, how do you actually start doing this? And we can improve processes internally to a certain point. You know, we could do some hiring, but to be honest with you, you know, to find it's really, really, really hard to find people that can handle the stress of a role like this, right? Um, yeah, and it seems it is, like it's very high stress. Yeah. And it seems like the type of business too, where you'd have to have a lot of that very specific knowledge and a lot of trust. So it's not like you can just sit down and, and you hire have these behaviors, right? Yeah, like personality-wise, you can have somebody that's really smart, but uh, and and you know they can find these solutions and stuff. But if they're not the type that you know, people react to stress in different ways. Some people kind of buckle a little bit, right? And then some people like that kind of gives them, you know, they kind of thrive off of it. And, and you know, they're almost like a thrill seeker. In a sense. I think yeah, I yeah, like yeah. have some kind of pathology that makes me like it. Right. But not everyone can handle like the stress, right. They might work <laughs> right one, you know, below you, but you, you know, you've got to be that, that shield for those other people. Right. Because not, you know, that's kind of what you get paid for to protect them. So they can just kind of do their thing without being interrupted or bothered. Right. No um, doubt. I think people overlook 
overlook that, the value in that. And like some people will look at people who hold those roles and it's like, what does that guy actually do? He's taking punches or she's taking right. punches. Like, you know what I mean? Well, it's some of the best leadership I ever worked with was at Honeywell. And, you know, I worked for a guy named Eric Hardy, who I absolutely just love to death. I thought I was going to quit my job when I found out I was working for him because he's like this ex West Point officer, tank commander type of guy. And he was very, but you know what? Um, I ended up loving him at, God, I love it. That was the hardest, I, I, hardest part of leaving Honeywell was leaving him because we made a really great team, right? And he taught me a lot of things and really ingrained a lot of leadership into me. And one of them is that, you know, you you stick up for your people, right? Um, and, you know, it's about, he's like, you know, be, you know, I think if I were to kind of sum up his whole management strategy, it would be this. It was like, be demanding, but be demanding and supportive in equal measure, right? Because if you're demanding, that just makes you an ass. Okay, yep. if you're not being supportive, you're not a good manager, you're just a jerk, right? Yeah. Um, you, you know, but it's, you know, but at the same time, you don't want to be, you know, supportive, but not push your people. Otherwise, they're never going to really become, you know, who they won't need to become, right? Totally. You know? So, so that's really the, the, the secret sauce is really that simple. We can talk about a million different techniques and frameworks, but it really just comes down to that. No, absolutely. Yeah, that reminds me of Jocko Willink. I don't know if you've heard of him, ex-Marine, really. I've heard Minky talk about him, and I've seen like a couple like super short clips, but I can't say I know much about him, though. Jocko. I know, I know, but I do have the name recognition for sure. One of those just absolute natural-born leaders, like from, really? from the Marines, had been, he's, mm -hmm. he's served for sure, but he's one of those guys that just like is going to be ultimately accountable for everything he does, encourages his you know, people, he's in business now, but he always encouraged everyone to be the same way, but also one of those guys that would get the best out of people, but also would take it to the chin when it, when he needed to. So really, yeah. really good with yeah. that too. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. You don't make excuses for yourself, you know, I mean, uh, you know, or ever blame your team. Yeah. There's just, yeah. I would say that, you know, good leaders, um, uh, always leave an impression on you. Uh, I mean, maybe that, that makes me a good leader because, you know, very much like Eric, everyone has strong opinions of me as well, right? <laughs> like when you meet me, uh, you, more, normally people either really like me or really dislike me, but most people don't have mild opinions. <laughs> I'll tell you that. And it was very much the same for, for Eric. It's just, you know, after I started working for him because of like the leadership, I mean, I just really came to love and respect the guy. He's really amazing. I, I'll just say all, all in all, Honeywell was just like, as far as like, being groomed for the type of manager and leader that you need to be the Honeywell's management training program is second to none, man. I mean, it's just really, really amazing. I can't say enough good things about, you know, about Honeywell. No, that's really, great. Especially where I've been today, especially from someone who's been through it. I think a lot of people tend to look back on certain things they did and tend to critique it, but to look back on it and to glorify it or really talk it up is awesome. And I, I you know, especially the other commitment to like the six Sigma training or else you're mm -hmm. gone. I think yeah. that is kind of like it's it does seem like a commitment to wanting the best or at least knowing what would be good for someone to do um, and then, yeah. you know, continually progress. If you want to kill your organization, don't promote those who go the extra mile. I mean, you know, focus on the people who want to make a change. Right? <laughs> Let's do this. Okay, so the first thing I always tell everybody is learn how to make system sketches. And because these are just really quick concepts. Uh, that, and this is what I call a, a context model. So this right here is a real example I used a bunch of time. Company uh, the, uh, basically came to me with a solution architecture question, right? Which was, hey, uh, we've got this system. We want to build a mobile app. We want to do push notifications with it, uh, you know, for the, you know, these certain reasons and stuff. What would, uh, based on this and a few other requirements, you know, 
what, what kind of system are you thinking? You know, just, I just want to outline, you know, roughly what is this going to kind of look like? How would it work, you know, at the concept, concept level? And you don't even, I mean, I can walk through this, but you don't even need to understand this as much as just say, what I did is I just threw the main components up here, right? And then I draw lines and then it has some text on the lines and you read it in the direction of the arrows, right? So the yeah. event processor consumes topics from, you know, the Kafka or what have you, right? And just doing something as simple as this, uh, throwing this up on a slide, it makes it so much easier to, you know, for people to understand, right? Because, you know, they can look at this for reference later, but I just start out with, okay, you know, here's your client staff, here's this B2B mobile app you're talking about. We're still talking high level. We're not getting into, you know, UI mockups or anything. Yep. You know, how can this, you know, uh, work at a high level? Learning how to make little system sketches like this is absolutely amazing, you know? And, and by the way, what software are you using for this? I think that would be Lucidchart. Lucidchart, that's a big yeah. one, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, they got some, uh, a lot of enterprise architects like to use some of these systems that are based around TOGAF and stuff like that. But where what I see there are people going through the motions. I don't, you know, I don't need all that stuff. You know, in fact, my charts and stuff are way prettier if I just use Lucidchart. <laughs> I've, I've heard great things about it. I know, um, you know, whether you're a solution arch architect or all the way up to enterprise architect, um, mm -hmm. I've always heard it, it's very widely applicable. So mm -hmm. good to know. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, entity relationship diagrams, I think everybody knows about when you start getting into the data model, right? You, you're going to, you, you don't have to be super complex with it. Just do what works for you. But you, you know, you definitely need to be able to whip out you know, some, uh, some ERDs pretty fast. Yep. And then, uh, here's one that a lot of software people don't know, but Six Sigma people, this will come naturally to you. And that's business process uh, and modeling notation, BPMN diagrams. And this is how we model business. And I'll say, these are amazing. I rarely ever make sequence diagrams in UML anymore because it just, it, if I do it from the business process perspective, it just makes so much more sense, right? Particularly when we get down to really trying to nail down some requirements. Um, I don't, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, again, I don't go in there with, you know, just trying to check some boxes and ask them some specific questions. I go in there, I facilitate a half-day workshop, say, okay, let's map out exactly how this is working now. And of course, they're going to say, we already know. And then, of course, we map it out and everybody starts arguing and realize they don't, right? But hey, you, again, you know, if you're asking me for directions to Chicago, the answer differs a lot depending on whether you're in Atlanta or LA, right? So I need to know where you're at right now, right? So this is why we do this, right? So we do this. Um, and then, you know, like I said, it becomes clear, it gets everybody on the same page uh, of what we're actually doing process-wise. And so for, for someone who might be interested in getting into um, the architect path, whether that's a solution architect all the way up through, um, how much of your day-to-day -day are you spending either generating or reviewing or uh, displaying diagrams that you've generated or that you have to clients or what have you how much time are I you say, well i mean okay so i mean it comes in fits and spurts right you know uh but i would say like if you were to just average it out over a year i would say literally 25 percent of my time you know gotcha. particularly if you're i mean maybe even 30 because you know a good portion of that is when you mentioned communicating that right because so how often uh, yeah am i throwing these slides up you know to talk to somebody but yeah um, the 30 percent that, that sounds about right especially because like we said earlier you're, you're getting down to the weeds as well so after you're kind of mm -hmm. implementing these things and then communicating them then you have the next part of your process which is kind of doing the product management and what have yeah, you and so. it's just covering your rear end too man because when you come back and they start to complain about something 
you're like, hold on, guys. You know, I thought we agreed on this. Let's pull up the process map. This is working exactly as we talked about. You know, what, sure, where, where was the sure. Oh, also, I want to say that this is also just to talk about some other diagrams. When you do things like this, uh, this spurs other things. You know, clearly, you want to do a lot of risk management. How do you how do you begin with risk management? Well, you do what they call in Six Sigma. You'll learn a failure modes and effects analysis (FMEA). It's another one of those big, complicated words for a super simple thing. All we're going to do, Brandon, is after we develop this model, when people want to start managing risk, I say, okay, we step through it. Hey, guys. Um, oh, excuse me. Um, I'll say, hey, guys, uh, right here. Tell me everything that could possibly go wrong with this step. If this step fails, tell me every way that it could fail, right? Yeah. And when you talk about, like, on a high level, what's everything that could go wrong with this, people are kind of, like, they don't have good ideas things aren't popping in their mind but when you get down to step by step you go through it right uh then you know now you're collecting a list of everything that could go wrong and now you can start to prioritize the risk and you know again like i said this something like this is not only a great in its own right it's an input for several other diagrams that you can do yeah exactly that, that makes complete sense i like that cover <laughs> cya people cya right so right and the last thing, Emily, just like one or two more slides here, and that is uh, I wanted to show you a real operating model. So we talked about capabilities, right? You know, you need to understand what your capabilities <clears> are. <throat> but at the highest level, what's the first diagram I do for any company that I want to do some serious change in is I make sure they have a good uh, core operational module, a one-pager like this. This is a real operating model of Delta Airlines. It's a bit outdated. I'm sure they've changed it. But I just want to say that this is real, right? And when I look at this, this is an amazing diagram. If I just walk into a company blind, because I can look at this, I'm just going to split it up for you. Right up here, I see their value chain. What's, if you don't know what a value chain is, is company has a million processes, right? What are those processes that actually are creating value, right, that the customers are paying for? Because, yes, we have training and HR, but that's not necessarily, you know, putting stuff. Here's the system, right? I can already tell we got, you know, kind of, you know, event-based stuff here. I can already see the uh, all the types of stuff that are going to have to be interfaced with the systems. I see the core data model, right? There again, they're going to have thousands of tables of data, maybe, you know, maybe tens of thousands. But what are the tables that really matter, right? As far from the business perspective, right? You know, uh, you're not going to fly anywhere without flight schedules, locations, aircraft, right? You know, again, <laughs> this because this is what it's about. A lot of times you can go in there, you know, there's a lot of stuff, right? And it and it's comes down to where do you focus? How well, yeah, I mean, right going there? back to your people, processes, and technology, mm -hmm. your, this is really dialing. I think, well, this does a great job of definitely dialing up the uh, reality, but also making it digestible at the same time. Yeah. Right. Now, you know, so we have that system in the middle, and then at the bottom, we have our customers. What this is right here, this is every touch point basically, right? So we've got some of their, uh, like their SkyMiles programs. We got the reservations, travel agents. These are all the points at which Delta comes in contact with its customers, which we call customer touch points, right? And then let's say, if I were to look at this, well, how is Delta leveraging these customer touch points to, to, uh, you know, to create a better customer experience? Well, right now, I mean, I don't know the details of these programs, but I know that they're using loyalty programs, digital relationships, and personalization factors. That's their main three, three levers strategically that they're using to improve the customer experience, right? I mean, this is just one simple little diagram and I just got a really good mindset of kind of where they're at and where that board's focusing, what they think is important, right? Um, I can start to have much more meaningful conversation after just staring at a diagram like this for three or four minutes. No, absolutely, yeah. And what is this called again, FMEA? What is it? But no, 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 no. This is what they call a core operating model. Core operating model, gotcha. Core operating model, yep. 
Uh, and yeah, so here's something cool. Uh, you know, again, going back to one of the hardest things to do is align the business and their technology. And it's super important. And again, if you're trying to achieve economies of speed and you really need that strategic agility, um, you've got to understand that when business talks about competitive advantages and SWAT and stuff like certain market segmentations, engineers don't give a shit about that, right? Or, you know, and when we talk about applications and relational databases and scalable infrastructure networks, guess what? The business guys don't give a shit about that. Right, there's the disconnect. The only the middle ground we have is this. We start with that core operating model, that last one, because that kind of gets gets this kind of frame where we can have some productive conversations. Then we're right. going to talk about capabilities, and then once we decide what capabilities we need to change or evolve, that's when we're going to start talking about specific business needs and what changes to our processes and developing some actual requirements that we hand over to the software architects or technical architect, you know, whomever, right? Um, but it's about focusing on this right here. That's really the sweet spot. That's where productive conversations come, where you can actually, um, you know, like I said, develop a technology strategy. Uh, because again, you know, the strategy itself doesn't really help you that much. We can talk about the core operating model and we can talk about the strategy, right? Um, but really we've got to focus on the capabilities and just, and just yeah, I think this is a really cool slide here. Um, this slide, I want to again want to give credit where credit is due. There's a, uh, I'm not going to pronounce his first name because I'll butcher it, but his last name is Kotuzev. He made this book right here, uh, on, and it's got an atrocious cover, and I think it's self published, but uh, this is probably one of the best books I've ever, ever, ever found on practical enterprise architecture for people that don't want to just go through the motions, but people that actually want to do this. Uh, and do this right. And the difference is right now we have uh, Gregor Hoff and even who and a lot of great guys talking about their you know experiences and giving some really useful advice, right? But what this guy did is he's a researcher. He's an enterprise architecture researcher. And he goes and researching talks to all these people and says, hey, based on all these people that did this successfully, this is my what my research shows. And uh, I want to bring up his name and talk to people about him because I read this book. I'm like, this guy's a genius. Let me find him on Twitter, Brendan. I go right. there. Dude's got 143 followers. He should, I expected him to have like 10,000 followers. Like this guy's research is good. It's diamond really in the, good. It's really diamond in the rough there. And That's great. I am angry that he does not have more followers. So everyone should look up <laughs> Kutuzev and the practice of enterprise architecture and go follow this dude. He's a smart guy. It's not that I don't want to also push even Hewitt and Gregor Hopp and some other people that, that you know should be listened to. But again, this is a guy who I think just really more people need to listen to him uh, and i would nothing would make me happier than for uh for him to just really blow up and people to really start listening to him because i think people would hate uh especially software architects and stuff would hate us eas a lot uh less if people were actually doing practical stuff like this rather than just going through the motions and putting you know arbitrary constraints on people that's great you, you whenever you find someone like that who is um under underviewed or under uh popularized i guess and you you know based on industry experience like this person knows what they're talking about you do you do want to scream it from uh the mountaintops and just really be like no no no, this is this guy's got it going on all right dude all right i overloaded you with slides now i know because i'm actually getting a little fatigued from that uh so, <laughs> yeah just like anything you want to talk about we can talk about now no that was great i think useful for really anyone uh, i mean everyone that has a job is in a business. And I think a lot of the lessons that come from what you just showed would be there, there's certain, certain lessons that can be extracted from all of that. But so that is, uh, 
the, the brain and the day-to-day -day operations of Brian Johnson, but uh, I, I think that what we want to know now is kind of uh, the path you took to get there. Because um, obviously, like we're saying, you know, most, most so all software engineers, professional software engineers have that deep, deep technical knowledge. And I'm complimenting you earlier about how you're consistently talking about things at that low level. Um, but I don't think it, maybe it's not too clear to people who are listening, how you gained, what, what path you took to have the knowledge technically, and then also to have the business acumen. Um, I think a lot of the personality stuff is just there and kind of comes with you innately or you, you developed it as a kid. Um, but what led you to Fangine and kind of um, being this, this operative that goes into businesses and tries to, uh, like we say, throw gas on them and do it in a systematic way? So I want to say that, you know, I, I certainly never grew up saying I wanted to be an enterprise architect or anything. In fact, to the best of my knowledge, it was the early 2000s before it was even officially a discipline. Um, I wanted, knew I wanted to be an engineer at a very young age. I want to say like seven, I think I had made up my mind. Um, wow. I was really that early. Yeah. But, uh, um, so my dad brought me some uh, basically off-brand Legos. I say off-brand Legos. They were actually better than Legos. They were called Constructix. Uh, they just didn't do as good mark, but you could build way cooler things than Legos with this thing, right? And I remember, uh, like I said, I could have been seven and I built some helicopter thing or I don't know. Uh, and my dad was really complimenting, but you know, your dads are always like your cheerleader, right? You know, so I'm just like, come on, dad, any kid can do this. And he, and he got really serious for me a second. He's like, no, Brian, not all kids can do that. You need to understand that. Look around you next time. Not everyone can just imagine this stuff in their head and take a thousand pieces and all of a sudden you've got this. Um, and I, I think that kind of let me know that, hey, maybe this is something I could be good at. Um, there's also probably just the psychological thing, especially at that age, getting praise from your father, right? That kind of like starts totally to maybe a core self-esteem. A now, genuine bit know. of advice delivered to you from someone you really care about. Or, you know, if yeah. you're seven, obviously you're idolizing your parents to some degree, yeah. Yeah. if you've yeah. been lucky enough to have a good set of parents, right? So that's, yeah, that's like the, yeah. that was the moment that kind of snapped in your head a little bit. That yeah, like I said, like, I knew, right. I, I mean, I didn't even say that. I don't even know that I knew the word engineer at the time, right? But I just did know that I wanted to design and build things that other people thought were really cool or useful or something, right? That was certainly, it It not only kind of helped my self-esteem, that I, was, I started to know that's where I get my professional fulfillment from, right? And it's even at an early age like that. I, and I think that idea of I want to design and build things, that's the core thing makes me happy, Um I don't necessarily have to be this specific type of engineer or so like, you know, I, I just want to build things that are cool. Right. That kind of attitude has really helped me. Um, it's funny you say that I, I had a very similar, a little bit older. I think I was 14 at the mm -hmm. time, but um, even when I was younger, my mother always said, I just liked pulling things apart and figuring out how they worked, whether it was like getting a new like console and instead of like turning it on and playing it being like, what makes this work? Let me open it up. And the story she always makes fun of me for was um, speaking of just like building, I want to design things and build things. I used to make my own bone arrows and that, that was in high school. And I remember there was one time I had a target I used to shoot into my garage at and it was in there. It was like one of those proper targets, but of course there was a glass microwave right above it. <laughs> and I remember one day, obviously I was, I made the things I couldn't shoot them well, but I could make them decently. Mm -hmm um missed high by a foot or so shattered the thing and it was 
kind of already in pieces. And I started taking that apart. My mom pulls in the driveway as I'm doing all of this and was just like, what are you doing? Why is shattered glass and what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Why are you trying to like deconstruct the microwave now? But I think I, I imagine a lot of engineers kind of have some kind of maybe not as much of an aha or like a seven years old recollection like you did, but some type of moment where they were either building something or designing something and you just got that flow feeling or that good bit of uh, reinforcement from someone that was like, yeah, exactly. that was good. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that positive reinforcement and that praise is what really kind of made me want it too, right? It kind of motivated me more. Um, I will say, I think that if that kind of recollection is important to me because I think I, I kind of accidentally, you know, started falling into a really good path with that attitude. I, I think <clears throat> you look up Steve Jobs speeches, you'll find a million of them. You know, the guy had a lot of bright ideas, right? Right. My favorite one, if you search, you know, uh, YouTube for like Steve Jobs insult response or something, it's like the most brilliant little, you know, little clip from him. And uh, not only in terms of communication, when someone like basically attacks you and you're on stage full of people, how do you handle that? Publicly. That really, yeah, how, he did that, handled that brilliantly. Um, but also like the main point he was making in this, in this little speech in his retort was that, you know, hey, Apple has a lot of cool technology. But one thing that we figured out is we can't build cool technology and say, okay, where are we going to sell this, right? We have to start with the customer first and then just know that we have the processes and processes in place to build cool technology after we find out what it is they want, right? And for me, now, I did lean towards software. You know, I taught myself C at 16 because I, I guess I'm a masochist. I don't know why I chose that as a first <laughs> language, but I'll tell you this, even though I don't use C that often, once you learn C, everything else is pretty simple. <laughs> no doubt yeah you yeah. want to go up to a higher level you know object-oriented language you it know, literally that. took me like almost two years to like really get it good i mean but like whatever i was a trooper man you know and not only that you gotta remember i didn't have youtube i was literally going to the library getting these like academic style books what really was the breakthrough moment for me was i think the release of o'reilly's practical c the one with the cowl in the front that was just that was a really great book on c and it helped some of the, like the pointer notation stuff that i had problems with um yeah, even, even I mean, some I know there's probably tons of people that are going to hear this and just think I started with Python. What what is a pointer? What are you talking about? I mean, I'm sure yeah. we'll have. And here's the thing, like, you know, uh, you know, if you don't really need to be dropping to that level and making, you know, abstractions come at a cost, but a lot of times they're worth it. Right. Yep. You know, so, you know, yep. the stuff you're building with, I build everything with Node now more than anything else. Like, why would I dare do that and see just to, you know, be like one of these Vim users that, you know, basically takes pride in using obsolete technology you know, um, uh, yeah yeah exactly so, so anyway you know, i taught myself that and i really want to be a software engineer but the opportunities just weren't there i mean I was, you know i was joining the military and stuff like that they did have a rating for that but they were kind of phasing it out so i ended up going into electronics you know uh, again you know i just kind of focused on all right you know what's the best i can do you know what's the best you know Poker terms, right? You know, what's the best play I have with the hand I have in front of me right now, right? That's kind of what I constantly ask myself and it allowed me to pivot, right? So I went into, you know, doing spending a lot of times as a hardware because a technician and later as an engineer, uh, specializing in measurement systems, got to play with a lot of cool toys. Now I was doing programming to automate a lot of these, you know, you know, hardware testing and stuff like that. But it, again, not web and mobile development, totally different world on that side, right? Right. Uh, but, you know, hey, you know, and then uh, when I kind of maxed out on that and I was actually thinking about going into management, I, I took, you know, I took the opportunity when I was pre you know, presented with it 
And I just, you know, I still came to it with my engineering mind. In fact, that's how I excelled, you know, against some of these MBAs is I just said, hey, as an engineer, I believe in systems. You know, what type of, you know, systems implicit or explicit are we using in this environment? And I started looking for those patterns and stuff, right? Um, and that's kind of what we, helped me really kind of blow the socks off my peers, right? You know, it's just, yeah. Again, you know, it's, it's really intimidating. You go into a, a management role and a lot of your peers have MBAs and stuff. And here you are like the engineering schmuck that's going to, you know, prove himself a manager, right? Um, but, you know, here's the disadvantage to them. A lot of them think a lot. And they're used to just using uh, tools and frameworks that they were, they were taught, um, which, you know, are generally if you're teaching that in school, it's more generalized because they don't know what industry you're going in, right? right. Whereas I had to just kind of say, hey... I've got to figure something out, you know, and maybe the solution I didn't come up with was perfect, but, um, you know, it was really tailored to the use case much, you know, and so I was able to get a lot more efficiencies that other people, you know, might not get. Um, no yeah, doubt said, about yeah, it. That, 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 yeah, that, that, that mindset, you know, but now I just want to say all that, you know, but here's the thing, you know, I always just looked at the opportunities in front of me and lo and behold, here I come full circle. Now, you know, I've, I'm doing what I always wanted to do, even when I was 16 years old, right? But now I have a management background in program management, operations management, right? I also understand hardware and electronics at a much deeper level than most people do, particularly, you know, people who specialize in software engineer. Yeah. Um, yeah. IoT is blowing up now, right? You know, right? So you have, you know, having those skill set, I actually love to take it on IoT projects, right? Because, you know, it kind of gives me a little nostalgia, right? No, you I know, do hear you getting excited about this, right? Yeah. I do, man. I do. Like, what well, I last client, I actually designed, you know, like a touchscreen panel thing. That that engineering hardware stuff was, yeah, it was really fun for me. I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, That's great because yeah, it gets nostalgic. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, the path. I think. I think. Yeah. I don't know if you've practiced that before, but that was a pretty, a pretty dead clear path. And I think the the value of kind of the the intersection of skills that you had, right, where you wanted to go and at least explore this management thing. And you're kind of comparing yourself to the MBAs at the time and kind of uh, maybe they know more. I think the practical application of what you had already done uh, and also managing oneself probably is a path I would recommend to most people for what that's worth. Um, but, um, you know, everyone's going to find it in their own way. And I think the way the way that you've danced on your feet all the way through to, uh, you know, from you know, being six and having that first aha moment all the way to Fangina where you are now. I think it's brilliant. I think it's a, it's a good path. I just want to say, listen, I, I mean, I don't want to downplay like my own efforts and stuff, but I do want to say that, you know, it, it really comes down to people, right? I mean, I can point to just a couple of people that were absolutely pivotal in my life and there's no way in hell I would be where I am today without it. You know, I talked about Eric Hardy before. There's another guy named Mark Pridgen who was the project manager at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base that, you know, he's the guy who taught me how to be, um, you know, assertive but in a friendly way that just kind of really disarms people and make them feel like jerk if they keep being aggressive with you right he just had this you know he was a southerner too he had this kind of southern charm and i really kind of even though he wasn't directly you know explaining this stuff to me i, I learned i absorbed that watching him right I actually you know eric hardy again um you know uh, Eric actually kind of like took me through a boot camp you know he started out by breaking i remember him looking at me and he said you know, you are just a, a know-it-all son of a bitch. You know that, you know, but you, I'll, let me tell you why I tolerate you because you've got potential. You think you know everything, you don't, but I'm going to teach you. Just take my hand, let's go. You know, he was arrogant too. That's something I liked about him, right? But here's the thing. Uh, not only did he show me how to really give myself some, some good self-discipline, um, but he really also taught me to believe in myself. And that's, I mean, I, that sounds cliche. I get it. But here's the thing. 
sometimes it's really hard to believe in yourself. Because if you get into these really cool jobs, guess what? There's not a hundred books written about it. Because these cool jobs, there ain't a whole lot of you know uh, people out there that have these. And that means you're going to have to figure stuff out for yourself. And you're going to have to get accustomed to just kind of throwing yourself into the deep end and learning how to tread water until you can actually learn a side, good side stroke or something, right? No, absolutely. I mean, uh, having that self-esteem and or that confidence and that belief is super important. It doesn't take much. I mean, we're talking earlier about, you know, you wake up an hour later in the morning and then all of a sudden your coffee's not there. Little things little things that can happen to your day that can make the whole thing just go bad. And then you translate that to certain decisions or problems that you're faced with in a career. And all of a sudden you start to maybe question yourself. And all of a sudden that leads to a little bit of doubt, but having that belief and that self-esteem to kind of push you through, be like, I don't know, like, I'm going to, I'm going to get this done. There's no manual written on it, but let's go in this direction. Have, have the confidence super important absolutely I, I came to eric one time basically trying to get him to back up my decision or something because of you know that kind of general attitude i remember him looking in the eye and he's like brian make a decision and live or die by it you know and and what he means by that is you know you know you, you don't have time if you start second guessing yourself everything's going to fall apart right you just have to you know, make a decision except that you made that with the best information you had at that time you know, everything, every decision is a risk. It might not turn out great. You don't beat yourself up about it. Like you said, you just kind of evaluate that, kind of do the postmortem, understand, learn from your mistakes. And nobody's going to have a problem with that. Uh, that's another thing I think when you're going from the individual contributor role to like a more management, particularly strategic management, is you're kind of afraid to make mistakes, right? Um, but, and believe, you know, you want to show that like you're perfect or something, but anybody in those role, they know you're not perfect. They, they're not, they not they expect you to make mistakes. That's why people ask you things like, what are your weaknesses and stuff? You know, they expect you, they want you to make mistakes because if you're not making some mistakes every now and then, you're not really being bold and moving things forward, right? Um, you can't play it safe, guys, you know, not all the time. Um, and just that learning, I would say for me, learning to be more open about when I made mistakes and what I saw that, you know, and not feeling that I was being judged, right? Mm -hmm. That was, I think, a good, I think, and that's something that I don't even think Alex realizes that he helped me with, but he did help me with a lot as well. Um, yeah, that, that, was a, that was a big thing for me. And everything, start, all the communications with executives in the boardrooms and stuff, um, you know, really started, yeah, it, they started to go a lot easier, right? Because I'm going to tell you, if you ever find yourself in front of a boardroom, I'm going to tell you exactly how this goes, right? <clears throat> First off, you've got to keep their attention. Otherwise, they're just like, get out. You know, you just basically, they start talking about something else, they ignore you, and then you just awkwardly just excuse yourself. From <laughs> Speaking from experience, Mr. Johnson. <laughs> be willing to just absolutely humiliate yourself if you want to get somewhere in life, right? Just get over it. Um, but here's the thing. Step two is they start trying to poke holes in everything you said, right? Totally. And Rightfully here's the thing. So. And the, yeah, here's the thing. You know, that's not bad. That's good. That means you got past round one. That's a positive thing. And if you start getting defensive about it, but you, you know, because, you know, okay, so basically what they said is, oh, I see how this is relevant and this could be helpful. The first thing they're going to say is, okay, what are his premises? They want to know that you got some valid logic. You know, what are the assumptions? What do we know as fact? No, you hooked them. They're just That's trying a, to figure out this stuff. They're not attacking you. So and if you start to get defensive, they're going to be like, oh God, here's like, this guy's clearly new to this, right? And yeah. that's a perfect way to frame that. It's not it, the wrong time to get defensive, probably the wrong time to go deeper. deeper. Um, yeah. Sorry, I think the headphones died. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah I can still hear you fine, yeah. So I think that's probably the time to go deeper is when you know you've got their attention and then you can go and you can go yeah. dig into it even deeper. That's really important. I yeah. like that a lot. You know, yeah, I think, but again, you talk, I had to humiliate myself. Well, not really, I've 
humiliating, but you know, a little bit embarrassing and awkward for me. Um, you know, but then I realized that I was kind of getting the same sets of questions every time, even when they seemed really interested and liked it. And that's when it just kind of like intuitively clicked for me, like, geez, relax. They're just trying to figure this out. You know, they're not like, you know, calling you a liar or a BS or anything like that. They just, you know, they just want to make sure, because again, if they're going to put some money on the line, they need to be reassured. That's no big problem, right? Again, no. even if you have some mistakes in there or some assumptions that aren't validated, as long as you're genuine and honest about it, they're going to be okay with it. They're going to say, hey, I like this idea. Come back to me next week. Here's the extra information I want to know. Let's let's get a meeting on the books, right? Yeah. And, and to your point too, I'll go back a little bit on um, kind of the MBA types. I think they're probably more prone to being afraid of making the mistakes or afraid of kind of going out on the line a little bit, just because everything for them has been theory. And they, if, you, if they're one that like, you always got the A, you always got the A, you get hit with something where right away, before you can even pitch something fully, someone throws some adversity at you. It's like, oh, like you don't expect that. But absolutely right. digging in, digging in there is super important. Um, I think last thing I got for you here would be um, a good, I think that's a good place to put a cap on it. Um, any book recommendations, resource recommendations for anyone, things that influenced you? It could be nonfiction. It could be, you know, manuals. It could be anything, anything you recommend that someone uh, dig into a little bit more. Um, so I would say one of, for communications, because that's the hardest thing, you know, uh, most engineers think I'm a brilliant communicator and maybe I am for an engineer, right? But it's mainly because we as engineers, what kind of makes us good at engineering is also kind of detrimental to our communi interpersonal communications, right? Um, when you want to get into strategic management, even Hewitt, uh, Technology Strategy Patterns, is a really excellent book. And he has some really great advice that you need to hear. Um, and uh, I'm going to tell you what, what really got me on this book is he read, uh, he, there's a couple places in here where he's like, don't do this, or this is what's going to happen. And guess what? I've been in the situation. I did that. And that's exactly how it played out. That's when I really started listening to this guy. I'm like, okay, yeah, I need to listen to this. Hey, when I talked about Kutuzev, you know, I haven't evaluated this guy's research methods or whatever. The reason I believe in him is because I know some of the stuff that when he says it doesn't work because of ABC, I just know for personal experience. And that's when I started paying attention to it. So yeah, communications, definitely that. Uh, if anyone is interested in um, uh, enterprise architecture, a book that I did not read for the longest time because it's an old book is uh, Enterprise Architecture Strategy. This is basically the Bible of enterprise architecture. It's not. Um, it's going to give it to you at a very high level. It's actually a pretty easy read. It's um, from the Harvard Business Review Press, and most of the information comes from the MIT Center for Information Systems Management, which is another really good place to you know look at IT trends and such. Um, yeah, there's a couple of things that are outdated, but again, they don't really get deep into the implementation. They kind of talk about what it's about. So even though this was published, I think 2006 or something, it's a great book to read, um, you know, just to get the high level of understanding, what is this really about, right? That, that's a yeah. great book. Yeah. Um, real quick, uh, again, I want to just go, please go follow Kuchisev. Yeah. <laughs> uh, practice of enterprise architecture. Um, yeah. And yeah, sorry, Mr. Kutuzev, if I butchered your name, but uh, yeah, he's got really great uh, insurance, um, uh, really great research on enterprise architecture. And then just one for everybody, because um, everybody needs to know a little bit of project management skills. You don't have to go getting um, uh, certified or necessarily in project management, but the what we call the PMBOK, the Project Management Body of Knowledge, that's an excellent book. I was actually talking to Harry about this the other day. Uh, you know, how you handle communications and stakeholder management and all this other ancillary stuff, project management, that's good. Um, 
Yeah, I guess I've only got one other book and I want to show you. This is a cool one because I paid 75 cents or a dollar for this book. I went, I was taking the kids to the library and they had one of these book sales and, you know, like 75, 50 cents or a dollar for a book or something. I was just thumbing yeah. through some. And this is how to communicate. Um, and this is an absolutely and really excellent book. It keeps things pretty high level. It, it focuses kind of a process that I like, you know, keep, let's keep the model simple, you know, um, you know, like the communication models they talk about in there. They don't talk about these really complex ones. They talk about this almost childishly simple ones. But you know, here's something about childishly simple models. They're super easy to remember. They're super easy to put in practice, right? Um, and, you know, it, they, they talk about everything from how to talk to your boss and your employees to how you talk to your children and give you just, again, real easy practical advice. And again, because as you know, people in the engineering side of the house, uh, one of the hardest things we have to do personally is learn to communicate better. That, I, you know, I definitely want that to be my last book but a recommendation that I show you. No, Brian, man, I appreciate all your time today. I think um, yeah. plenty for people to, to chew on and digest here, but um, especially from the software community, kind of thinking about what, what it is that you do and learning about enterprise architecture in general is like, all right, that's, well, listen, that's, that's a thing that exists. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. I'll tell you, I mean, I'm certainly not old, but I, you know, in just a few weeks, I'm turning 42. Uh, and that you at that age, you know, my kids are starting to kind of graduate school. And so one of the things you actually kind of start to think about is like, you know, what's the next generation of engineers going to be like, right? I mean, I'm not saying it's taking up my whole idea, but I am starting to think about that a lot more. So I'm really happy to talk and share my experience with, you know, anybody that's, you know, wants to hear me run my mouth about <laughs> That's awesome. I think it's, uh, I think we've got to go at it here. And um, thanks again for your time and we'll catch up real soon. Okay, man. Be good. Have a great night, man. Hi, you too, buddy.